Normally you give me a little bit of time here to get all set up. That was fast. That just means you're ready. All right. Obadiah. Tell you what, you can, get, you can fly right by Obadiah and miss him. It's just one chapter. It's on page 915 on my Bible, but I don't think it's the same in yours. Uh, if you find Amos, it's right after Amos. And if you get to uh, Jonah, you've gone too far. <clears throat> Excuse me. Obadiah. We began a study on Obadiah last week. A study of uh, the very important attributes of God, who is the God of all prophecy. The God who knows the beginning from the end and the end from the beginning. The God who is holy. He's sovereign, he's holy, and he's a God of love. These are the three characteristics that we focused upon last time. So now we're entering into the study of the book of Obadiah, and I mentioned to you we're going to be in a one-chapter book four more weeks. Because there's a lot of material that we need to cover, not only about prophecy, because we're going to cover a lot of that about what's happening even today. But, um, But also... We're going to look at a lot of issues that pertain to us now. For example, today, the focus of our study is going to be upon pride. Because the main focus of the book, the judgment upon Edom, the reason for that judgment upon them is pride. The pride of Edom. So let's read the first three verses and then we'll get right into our study. Obadiah chapter 1, and the only chapter, (laughs) verse 1. The vision of Obadiah. Thus saith the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a rumor from the Lord, and an ambassador is sent among the heathen. Arise ye, and let us rise up against her in battle. Behold, I have made thee small among the heathen. Thou art greatly despised. The pride of thine heart has deceived thee, thou that dwellest in the clefts of the rock, whose habitation is high, that saith in his heart, Who shall bring me down to the ground? We'll stop there. Tonight is pride. There are 12 things that we will see throughout the book of, of Obadiah. Judgment, love, rejoicing, obedience righteousness and mission, faith and discouragement, devastation, priority, religion, but tonight is pride. So before we get into our study this evening, I'd like for us to consider some questions. Are there some sins that are particularly offensive to you? Now just think about the questions. Are there certain sins that are particularly offensive to you? Might there be some sins offensive to the church? Are there some sins or a sin that you can name that God finds chiefly offensive? Especially offensive. See, as we consider the first three verses of this prophecy of Obadiah, we will be coming face to face 
with a very harsh, even severe reality. And that is that God doesn't look at sin the way we do. Think about that. God does not look at sin the way we do. There is a verse that some of us use when when someone doesn't have much to offer in regards to outward appearances. You might remember that Samuel went to Jesse's house. This, of course, was during the time of Saul, King Saul. And it was not... Saul was not God's choice for king. The people chose Saul as king. So God sends Samuel to Jesse's house in the area of Bethlehem looking for the next king of Israel. And and Samuel may have been somewhat confused as to why God didn't want any of the first few sons because he had all of the sons of Jesse parade in front of him. As far as Samuel was concerned, there were probably some good candidates. But of course, we hear the Lord say to him in 1 Samuel 16, verse 7, The Lord said unto Samuel, Look not on his countenance. In other words, look not on what you see from his physical features or on the height of his stature. Remember that Saul was chosen because he was a foot, he was a head taller than everybody else. And he says, because I've refused him. He was looking at one particular brother of David who didn't get into the parade because he was the youngest out in the field with a sheep. So this is what the Lord says to Samuel. Don't look on his countenance or on the height of his stature because I have refused him. For the Lord seeth not as man seeth. For man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. So you see, from that particular standpoint, we don't, we don't even see what God sees. We don't even see how God sees. We look at certain things, but God sees the heart. Now we need to understand that this works two ways. This works two ways. We would all agree that God sees the good in people when we can't see any. Isn't that something? Sometimes that's the way some people see you. They can't see any good in you, but God sees the good in you. Not here to burst any bubbles or anything, but remember, we're talking about pride tonight, so we don't want us to get too far up here. (laughs) So we'd all agree that God sees the good in people when we can't see any good in people. Likewise, he also sees the bad in people when we find none. You You ever watch the news? And, and you, the local news, and you, and some, you know, some some heinous crime took place, you know, and they know where the where this 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 perpetrator lives, you know, and they they go talk to neighbors around the, you know, the the the, the news media talks to them, and, and and they say, well, you know, yeah, I know him, he's a nice guy. <laughs> I've never seen anything bad in him, of course not. They out there, they're out there committing crimes and hurting people and stealing from people or killing them. God sees the bad in people even when we don't. So this evening we're going to look specifically at pride. We are going to look at pride. The pride of Edom, but also the existence of pride in our own lives, in the life of the church and even in our nation. We're going to come back to this subject momentarily. 
But let's consider the rest of our text first because we need to kind of lay the foundation for the study of, of, of the book of Obadiah historically, geographically, and so on. So going back to verse 1, the vision of Obadiah. Now remember, this is something that has been given to Obadiah by God, a vision. So he sees it physically to some extent, but he also sees it spiritually. And he hears God. So prophets hear from God. They, they see what God wants them to see. And they experience that particular vision in that manner. We, we don't unless we're a prophet that God shows something to. Thus saith the Lord concerning Edom. So now we see it as the Lord God. By the way, Adonai is Lord here. Capital L, little O-R-D is the, is the word Adonai, which means sovereign Lord. So remember last week we, taught, we started with the aspect of God being sovereign. The characteristic, the attribute of God being sovereign. So this is where we got it from. Thus saith the Lord God concerning Edom. So God is saying something about this particular nation. We have heard a rumor from the Lord, and an ambassador is sent among the heathen, Arise ye, and let us rise up against her in battle. So, in essence, Obadiah is saying, We've heard this rumor from the Lord. These things are happening against Edom. And we'll stop there and we'll come back to that later. So last week we sort of identified Obadiah. Now why do I say sort of identified Obadiah? Because I mentioned that Obadiah came out of nowhere, seemingly out of nowhere, to be this prophet. But we know him and identify him by the meaning of his name. His name means servant of the Lord. He is a servant of the Lord, and so he's not only that, but that's his name. So God raised him up for this particular time and purpose. We also considered three of the attributes of God last week. Oh, by the way, Obadiah lived during the time of Jeremiah and Ezekiel. We'll, we'll cover that in another study. But last week we considered three of the attributes, as I mentioned earlier, his sovereignty, his holiness, and his love. But now let's concern ourselves with Edom. We need to understand why Edom, why this now, now there are many other prophecies concerning Edom, and they all are connected to some extent. We'll get to them at another time. But since the book of Obadiah is a pronouncement of God's judgment on this nation, it is going to help us to know something about Edom. So we're going to go to the book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 25, we're going to start there. Because in Genesis 25, we are introduced, or we were, if you were here in our study of the book of um, Genesis, which we did, I used to think it was just not too long ago, but it's been a while now. But in Genesis 25, we were introduced to the, the man who would later have this nation named after him. This man happened to be the twin brother of a person named Jacob. And both of them, of course, were born to Isaac and Rebekah. I think you know who it is. Speaking of Rebecca, it says, And when her days to be delivered, this is Genesis 25, verse 24, When her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb. And the first came out red, all over like a hairy garment. And they called his name Esau. Esau, which means red. 
This is for whom Edom was named. And after that came his brother out and his hand took hold on Esau's heel. Heel catcher. His name was called Yaakov, Jacob. And Isaac was threescore years, uh, years old when, uh, when Rebekah bare them or when Rebekah had them. Isaac was uh, 60 years old. And the boys grew. And Esau was a cunning hunter, a man of the field. And Jacob was a plain man, dwelling in tents. And Isaac loved Esau because he did eat of his venison. But Rebekah loved Jacob. Now when you think about this, you know that story, if you go back, it's a crazy story. Because even before these two were born, they were fighting already inside of Rebecca's womb. So ladies, be thankful you were Rebecca. But we see here how different these boys would grow up. They would grow up different in appearance. They would grow up different in values and ambitions, in likes and dislikes, and in that in which they loved. Different. One son was daddy's favorite. That was Esau, because Esau was a hunter. And Esau would go out hunt and bring you know, deer in, and he would cook it for his father. And boy, his father loved the outdoorsman Esau. The other, I guess some people call him a mama's boy. Jacob, like to be inside the house. Probably if it had been in modern times, it would have been a decorator maybe or something like that, you know. Something like that. I'm not sure. But we learned in the book of Genesis that he was a tough person too. So, you know, he wasn't what you think. But while there was no one thing that you could pin the problem on, the problem between these two brothers... It is obvious from the biblical record that there were years of tension between the two. As I said, they even wrestled in Rebekah's womb. And we've learned from the Genesis account of the birthright of Esau. You know, that birthright that Esau sold to Jacob for for a bowl of lentejas. That's what it was, you know, lentil soup. we learn that he despised his birthright. And all that went with it, he despised it. We've learned from the stolen blessing that Jacob was a deceptive man who was out for his own interest, even if it meant turning his back on family, honor, and honesty. And so the two fought bitterly and even had to separate themselves from one another. In Genesis chapter 28, we're going to move on a little bit. In Genesis 28, we read, that Isaac sent his son Jacob back to where his family was from to take a wife from among his own people, Padan Aram. He sent his son out with blessings and great hope. You know, he, he sent Jacob out in that manner. But Esau knew about what was going on. So out of spite and anger, he chose to act out in retaliation. Consider in verses 6 through 9 of Genesis 28. It says, when Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob. Now just think, he's already, he already despises everything that, that he's been given 
But he also despises the fact that Jacob gets blessings. And he knows Jacob. Jacob's a conniver. A supplanter. When Esau saw that Isaac had blessed him and sent him away to Padan Aram to take him a wife from thence, and that as he blessed him, he gave him a charge, saying, Thou shalt not take a wife of the daughters of Canaan. Just hold this thought here for, for just a little bit. And that Jacob obeyed his father and his mother and was gone to Padan Aram. And Esau, seeing that the daughters of Canaan pleased not Isaac his father. Now don't get everything from this particular passage yet, but hold on to the thought. Then went Esau unto Ishmael. Ishmael. And took unto the wives which he had, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebaioth, to be his wife. So hold on to the thought about the Canaanite wife. Although he did not marry a Canaanite woman at this point, he did marry into a family which God had rejected. Ishmael. That of the unchosen line of Ishmael. And that whether to appease or to please or humor his parents, he actually gave no proof of lessening his vindictive, malicious purposes against Jacob. Over time, two nations developed from the families of these two men. They were related by blood, but torn apart and divided by everything else. Little love was lost between the two peoples, just as little love had been lost between the two brothers. And while the book of Genesis records for us that the two made an attempt to make amends, the fighting continued for years to come. But it wasn't fighting between brothers anymore, it was fighting between nations. We know that God changed Jacob's name to Israel. But what do we remember about Esau? When you go to Genesis chapter 36, verses 1 and 2, we're told, now these are the generations of Esau, who is Edom. Who is Edom. So now we know where Edom comes from, from where this nation began. Just like we know that Israel began as the sons of Jacob. And they became a nation. And it's interesting that Israel became a nation, not in Israel, but in fact, in Egypt. In verse 2 of our text, it says, Esau took his wives of the daughters of Canaan. Now, consider that. The very thing that he knew was something that his father Isaac has said not to do. So Esau took his wives of the daughters of Canaan, Ada, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, uh, Ahilobama, the daughter of Anna, the 
daughter of Zibion the Hivite, and so on and so forth. You read on down, and then you get to verse 8, and it says, Thus dwelt Esau in Mount Seir. Esau is Edom. Twice it tells us that, just so you'll remember now that there's a nation that has come out of this man named Esau. So, let me see where my pointer is here, okay. The next verse, and these are the generations of Esau, the father of the Edomites in Mount Seir. All right, so now now that lets us know where they are. So this is historic, and it's also geographic. So when we get to, uh, this is kind of an over, uh, one of those satellite type pictures. (coughs) Excuse me. Uh, here's Jerusalem right here. I see Jerusalem. Here's the Dead Sea. Normally when you uh, head south, when we go to Israel, we head south along, all along this corridor here. Normally we end up in this particular area here. And then we see this little patch of area. Notice Seir and Edom. This is probably the area that is what we're dealing with as far as Mount Seir is in that area. And the mountains are where we're going to... Let's look at that. Uh, This is one of the pictures uh, taken, a little village over here. This is Jordan, by the way, the the modern nation of Jordan. And little villages here. Here's the Dead Sea. And... um, But these are the mountains of Edom the mountains of Edom. Notice how, you know, hilly, craggy they are. That's, that's an important thing that we're going to see here in just a moment. Uh, this is kind of just a modern-day picture. There's the West Bank. Here's Israel. Uh, here's Jordan. So here, this is what we were looking at right here. So this area here, that is Mount Seir and the mountains of of Edom, okay? And you see Egypt here, Israel, Jordan, Saudi Arabia, Iraq, Syria, Lebanon. There's a point right here where the three meet, and we go there, and we we travel probably all of this area here. Okay, that's a commercial for next time we go. And so Edom was the nation that grew out of a string of ungodly marriages of Edom, or I'm sorry, of Esau, to pagan wives that God had forbidden the Hebrews to marry. Now, a lot of times we don't think this way, but the, these, are, these are twin brothers, Jacob and Esau, twin brothers, in the same womb, from the same parents, their blood. In effect, they're, they're Hebrew. They're Hebrews. So is Esau. We never think about that. But he is. Out of Jacob come the ten tribes of Israel. Or the twelve tribes of Israel, I should say, not the ten. Well, the ten there, but add a couple more. Actually, the thirteen tribes of Israel. Out of, out of Jacob. Esau, had he married the way that his father had wanted him to. It would have been one big family. Happy, I don't know, but one big family anyway. But instead, he marries 
outside. The pagan, you know, women from all these other lands that God said not to do so. So think, think about the fact that today they're still related. They're still related. But they have been fighting a war for centuries. Centuries. So now, as far as the geography of the land goes, Edom, also known as Seir, it's known as Hor, H-O-R, and Esau also, they call it Esau. It was the territory bordering Judah to the east and the south. That is, it was to the east of the Jordan River and extended southward from the borders of Moab to the Gulf of Aqaba. And once again, let me just really quickly point out here, uh, here's the Gulf of Aqaba here, and there's a lot is the southernmost tip of Israel, and here's Aqaba. Okay, so that's how far it extends, all the way down to this area, all in that area there. So on the eastern side of Edom was bordered by desert. Of course, if you remember, there's Saudi Arabia, and then, of, you know, uh, and that actually goes up and out. Or, or out and up, I should say. Saudi Arabia it is. So it's all desert. And it was approximately 20 to 30 uh, miles wide and 100 miles long as far as the nation of Edom of that time was concerned. So the northern and eastern areas of this territory contained parts fit for cultivation. Some parts of it were fit for cultivation. Those along the, uh, the border of the, uh, of the Jordan River uh, when the Dead Sea wasn't dead. But these were not what gave importance to the land. The real importance of Edom was due to two factors. First, it was situated along the great trade routes between Syria and Egypt and could profit from this trade that brought business. And the inhabitants grew rich on tolls extracted from the many caravans. But the second factor was Edom's natural strength and security, those mountains. The mountains were Edom's strength. It was Edom's security. The central area is characterized by red sandstone cliffs that rise to the heights of more than 5,000 feet above sea level. Now, when we had a picture of the Dead Sea, that's the lowest place on the earth. The lowest place on the earth. And yet those mountains rise 5,000 feet above that. So they were easily fortified. And as a result of having made their home within this natural fortress, the people of Edom were free to wage war and to levy tribute on others while being relatively free of outside interference. They would really just exact as much tribute as they could from people. They were the early day pirates, if you want to call them that. Inland pirates, but they were pirates nonetheless. It is unclear how Esau or the Edomites came to possess the land they inhabited. We only know that by Genesis 32, Esau possessed the land called Seir. Now after Jacob had left Laban, there would be a meeting between the brothers Jacob and Esau, even though Jacob believed that Esau was out to kill him and his family. But eventually they met in a friendly, even loving brotherly way. And after this meeting in in Genesis 33, Esau returned to the land of Edom. Now, in Numbers 20, 
in Numbers chapter 20. And this is many years later. So Esau himself is not around any longer. But Edom appears in the story of the exodus of the children of Israel from Egypt. Edom now appears. And we need to, we need to understand that these are the situations that are bringing about the prophecy in Obadiah. When the children of Israel had come out of Egypt into the Sinai and wanted to pass on to the promised land through Edom, the Edomites refused to give them passage even though Moses promised to harm nothing and even to pay for whatever water the people and their herd should drink. Moses offered them that. We'll pay. We'll take care of you. We'll, we'll give you what you need, what you, what you want for it. What do we find in Numbers 20, verses 20 and 21? It says, he said, the he here is the king of Edom at the time. And the king of Edom at the time said, thou shalt not go through. And Edom came out against Moses uh, with much people and with a strong hand. And thus, Edom refused to give Israel passage through his border, wherefore Israel turned away from him. So now you're beginning to see why God has a judgment many, many years later against Edom. But let's continue to add stuff to that. Because when David, the king of Israel, and this was before he was king, when David was running from Saul, who was king of Israel at the time, and, and, and David ended up going to Ahimelech the priest in Nob for food and, and actually would be given Goliath's sword there in Nob because these priests, there were 85 priests there in Nob, they gave uh, David the sword of Goliath. Well, there was a spy there in, uh, in Nob that actually informed Saul of David's whereabouts. See, David was a wanted man. Saul wanted to kill him. Saul had gotten tired of hearing Saul has killed his thousand, but David is ten thousands. So he was saying, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm coming after this guy. He was, he was prideful. He was prideful. And you know, David to the very end loved Saul. David to the very end humbled himself before Saul. He was running from him, but he, he would have, if, if, if Saul would have stopped, he would have, he would have humbled himself to Saul. So this spy that informed Saul of David's whereabouts was an Edomite. And his name was Doeg, D-O-E-G. Saul sent soldiers to Nob to execute the priests that helped David. A soldier in particular. He didn't want to kill them. He realized it was the wrong thing to do. He, he, he said, these are priests. These are God's priests. Doeg did it. Doeg the Edomite, without any hassle, without any problem, said, I'll do it. And he later killed 85 prophets, along with their families and their livestock, on Saul's command. An Edomite with a hatred for God's people. Now, later on, when David was king, he conquered the Edomites in a great battle. 
that you can read about in 2 Samuel chapter 8, so write it down and look it up. 2 Samuel chapter 8, verses 13 and 14 in particular. You can also read 1 Chronicles 18, verse 12. 2 Samuel 8, 13 and 14, and 1 Chronicles 18, verse 12. Write it down, look them up later. And from that time on, through the reign of Solomon, the son of David, the Edomites were now subject to the descendants of Jacob. The Edomites were now subject to the descendants of Jacob. And one writer noted this. He said, and I quote, Until this time, Edom must have been thought of as Israel's elder brother in being stronger, older, and more developed. By this battle, the elder was supplanted by the younger in clear historical analogy to the Jacob-Esau parallel in Genesis. Remember that? The prophecy that came? The elder will serve the younger. It was being fulfilled not only right after the birth of these men, but even in the time of David. From this point on, one can trace the bitter rivalry, I should say, which is documented in the prophecy of Obadiah. End quote. So during Solomon's reign, as seen in 1 Kings 11. So you want to look that up as well. 1 Kings 11. The Lord used a man named Hadad. H-A-D-A-D. Hadad the Edomite. He used this man to punish Solomon for his worship of false gods. God used this man. Allowed Hadad to be a thorn in the side to Solomon because Solomon had fallen into the worship of false gods, because he married so many pagan women. And they made him worship their little gods of stone and whatnot. Solomon, the wisest man in the world, wasn't so wise at that moment. So when Edomite is raised up by God, allowed to give Solomon a, some what of a judgment here. I want to ask you one other question. Who was it that tried to kill Christ Jesus as an infant? It was none other than a man named Herod, who, by the way, was an Edomite. He was an Edomite. And so... The beginning and history of the nation of Edom is quite fascinating. But let's look at something that God himself says through the prophet Malachi. We have to see this again. This is all foundational for us to understand why God is judging this nation of Edom. In Malachi chapter 1 verse 1, and by the way, Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. So if, if you uh, get to Matthew, which is the first book of the New Testament, the book right before it is Malachi. And it begins very similar in a sense to Obadiah's prophecy, the burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. Now notice that this is a word to Israel. So this is to the people of Israel. This is to the sons of Jacob. This is to God's people the people that he has chosen to be his people. And who, by the way, are not chosen because they're good. 
Not chosen because they're strong, not chosen because they're many, but because God loved them. And God chose them to use them eventually. So the burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi, I have loved you, saith the Lord. Yet you say, wherein has thou loved us? And the question comes back to them, was not Esau Jacob's brother? Saith the Lord. Yet I love Jacob, which is who you are. Y'all are Israel, you're Jacob. And I hated Esau and laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness. Now you might be wondering at this statement that God has made. You may be looking at all of this and wondering about the Lord himself. But remember that he is the sovereign Lord. He is the king. He is righteous. He is just. He is perfect. He is true. And this is not the only time, by the way, in the scriptures where the Lord expresses hatred of a people. This is not the first time. The important thing to ask is this. Why did God hate Edom? Why did God hate Edom? The answer is in verses 2 and 3 of our text. So now you go back to Obadiah. And we'll come back to Malachi, so keep your hand or finger or bookmark in, in uh, Malachi. So you go back to Obadiah and you look at verse 2. It says, Behold, I have made thee small among the heathen. Thou art greatly despised. I mean, there are a lot of nations, the Canaanites, and you, you, you name it, all kinds of other nations, other, other entities that were growing at that time and becoming a stronger nation uh, in and of themselves or stronger nations within themselves. God says, I made you small. To some extent you would think, well, of course, they're small, and so therefore they had to find the best place where they could protect themselves, so they go up into the hills. But God says, no, you're small in a lot of other ways. Most likely they're small because you're greatly despised by me. I despise you. Because of what you have done to my people. Then he says in verse 3, the pride of thine heart has deceived thee. The pride of your heart has deceived you. Thou that dwellest in the clefts of the rock, whose habitation is high, that saith in his heart, who shall bring me down to the ground? In other words, they lived in those rocks and they said, hey, we'll take on all takers. We know you're not going to reach us. We know you can't get up here. You, you, you guys can't come and attack us. Well, we can come down and get you. Then we can run back up and hide because you can't get us. You can't find us because we're going to hide in all the clefts of all the rocks that are up here. This is our land. This is our way of taking care of ourselves. This is our way of, of, of producing what we need to get and we'll get it out of you and we'll get it from, you know, from whatever means necessary. It was their pride, you see. That no one else could get them. Who shall bring me down to the ground? That is the pride of Edom. It's as if to say he, this, this people was saying this in the very face of God. 
From the time of our ancestor Esau, we've been fending for ourselves. We don't need you, God of Israel. So we don't want you in our lives. You see this in, 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 the, in the way that Esau married the Canaanite women and the Ishmaelite women. Never really, get, never really going to the place where Jacob had been sent. Would he not have come to his father and said, you know, Father, can I go too? I want to be obedient to to you, Father, uh, you know, speaking to Isaac. Would Isaac not have sent him? It's quite possible that he would have. It's his son. And if he showed some remorse or some repentance or some attitude of saying, you know, really, you know, we're growing up now. Jacob's growing up. I'm growing up. We're trying to mend our ways here. We're trying to mend our, uh, amend our, our, our own battles here. We're growing up. We're mature now. We, which is one of those problems that we see in the church all the time is that sometimes I wonder, do people grow up? Become mature because, we, because we've planted ourselves in the Word of God and we realize, you know, hey, it's time for us to grow up. It's time for us to humble ourselves and let God be the one who exalts us, not us exalting ourselves. But God will exalt us. Because with his exaltation comes blessing. So the book of Obadiah is the only place in the scriptures where we find an explanation of why God hated Esau. It was simply but profoundly because of pride. The pride of thine heart has deceived thee. God hated Edom's pride so much that he pronounced and carried out complete destruction on the nation. As a nation, it is not there today. As we know it in the scriptures, Edom is no longer a nation. Now, it doesn't mean that there are not Edomites still kind of existing amongst those who live in Jordan and, and other places, of course. Well, we're, we're going to talk a lot about that in the next couple of weeks because we're, we're still three weeks out from finishing this book. We're just getting started. But it is not there as a nation today, and it won't come back because the Lord carried out His judgment on the sin of pride. And therefore, I want you to go back to Malachi. I told you to keep your, your finger there. So you go back to Malachi chapter 1 and look at the next verse. The next verse says in Malachi 1 verse 4, Whereas Edom saith, notice Edom, notice it doesn't say Esau, it says Edom. Whereas Edom saith, we are impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, they shall build, but I will throw down. Do you see that? They say, we're going to build again, but I will throw down. God says, and they shall call them the border of wickedness. When we go to Israel, there is a border. And on one side, it is called the border of wickedness. But on the other side, notice, 
The people against whom the Lord has indignation forever, that's the border of wickedness. That's one side. You go to verse 5 and it says, Your eyes shall see and you shall say, The Lord will be magnified from the border of Israel. There is a border of blessing. Not because the Israelites were stronger or better, or even today the Israelis are better and stronger than anybody else, although they are. They still need to come to Christ. They still need to come to their Messiah. They still need to acknowledge God as their king. They still need to do that as a people. But that's what these next few years, going into the seven years of, 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 of tribulation that are directed toward Israel, are about. The important thing is here is that God drew a line. God drew a border. And he said, on one side is the border of wickedness. But on the other side, the Lord will be magnified from the border of Israel. God chose Israel to be the place where he will meet his people. Most people today would not consider pride all that bad. Let's get down to a little more personal level about pride. And the questions that I asked you earlier. Most people today would not consider pride all that bad, certainly not something for which, in the judgment of men, God would destroy an entire nation. But I'm a little concerned about that. Let me, let me interject something here about our own nation. Because right after 9-11-2001, after the Twin, tire, twin Towers came down, The nation rallied. The people of this nation rallied. Kind of unified us as a people. We had the slogan, God bless America, all over the place. Bumper stickers, window stickers, you know, placards out in front of businesses, on churches, in, you know, restaurants. They, somebody even took a picture of a, some kind of a, you know, adult place that said, God bless America. It's like, what? You know, everybody was saying, God bless America. But the nation's politicians decided that they were going to get spiritual and they looked into the scriptures and they found some scriptures that said that they were going to rebuild, rebuild the nation themselves. But I'm afraid that they did not read the context of the passage that they were reading in the book of Isaiah. And ever since then, we have seen a tremendous decline in our nation in a lot of ways. Spiritually, morally, financially. What has happened? We have to be very careful what we say. Rather than humbling ourselves before God. As the message came to Solomon when he was, in fact, asking God what it was that he needed to do and be as the king of Israel, to be obedient to God and to maintain Israel as a nation for God. He was told, If my people 
who are called by my name shall humble themselves. Start there, you see. If my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven. I will forgive their sin. And I will heal their land. 2 Chronicles 7.14 So with that in mind, just think of what I'm going to say because we've got to close here very shortly. Most people today would, consider, would not consider pride all that bad. We see it on, on, on you know, football players all the time. Man, they're prideful, man. They're walking around, man. You, know, you ever seen a team that's losing by 50 points and one of the guys on the team that's losing by 50 points makes this tackle and he gets up and he starts to do this dance? Man, you're losing by 50 points, dude. That's pride. That's stupid too, but weird. If you're winning by 50 points, I can understand it, you know. But you're losing by 50 points. So how can it be, you know, how can this be so bad, you know, that God would judge man? I mean, God would destroy an entire nation. But this says more about our light views, our light views of sin than it does about God's workings. In fact, most Christians today would argue that pride is even a sin worth fussing over. Was 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 that all that God was upset about? Pride is bad, but but it's not that bad, is it? You know, we could we could draw up scenarios. We could draw up scenarios of Christians or even Christian leaders. Listen, listen carefully, because this is where we have to think. We could draw up scenarios of Christians or even Christian leaders involved with things like drinking, you know, DUIs, drug abuse, theft, pornography, deviant behaviors of all types. And how would we respond? That's why I asked the question, you know, do you, do you think there's, there's, a, you know, how, there's a sin that you consider really grave here? But add to that list a certain church member or church leader filled with a prideful attitude and our response will be entirely different. You know, people in the church are going out doing terrible things. I mean, you know, doing things that, you know, you could actually take them aside and say, you know, brother, let's, let's sit down. This is wrong. Okay, you've been caught. Let's, let's quit doing this. But pride for us is not at that level. We just figure we could talk to them and say, you know, it's better to be humble than, than prideful, right? But the scriptures say, the scriptures say that pride is in a word, the sin of sins. The scripture says that pride is the sin of sins. Proverbs 6, 16 through 19. I'm going to go through this pretty quickly because of time. But I want you to notice what is the first thing mentioned. These six things does the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination unto him. Now, usually we say, okay, the abomination has to be the number seven thing. But I want you to consider the number one thing first. Six things does the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination unto him. But he begins with this, a proud look. A proud look. 
which means that if the look is proud, the heart is prideful. It begins in here. A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood. Every one of the other seven sins is connected to pride. Selfishness above all else. Self above everyone. Self above God. That is pride. A proud look. A lying tongue. Hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked imaginations. Feet that be swift in running to mischief. A false witness that speaketh lies. And he that soweth discord among brethren. I worry about that last one because there are people in churches today that sow discord among brethren. Telling lies about others. Without humbling themselves before God, without actually humbling themselves to someone else, saying, I can never tell this person that I forgive them. You just made yourself God. Or better than God because you say that you, can't, you won't forgive. And yet God can forgive. And God does forgive. Who are you? Listen to Proverbs 16, verse 5. Everyone that is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Do you know how serious that is? An abomination is not just a, just a little bit of a level above, you know, God being really upset. No, it's the worst kind of thing that you can be. Abominable actions, abominable thoughts, abominable words are completely hated by God. Hated. Though hand joined in hand, he shall not be unpunished. That's serious. Verse 18 of the same chapter, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit, which is a, an arrogant, uh, uh, conceited spirit before a fall. You know, when we were in school, you know, somebody was acting a little different than us. Hey, man, you're conceited. I say, you know, whatever. You're thinking too much about yourself. They were arrogant. We didn't learn the word arrogant yet, but we learned conceited pretty early in our lives. I don't know why. But arrogance, conceitedness, haughty spirit, before a fall. Before a fall. Destruction, before a fall. That, that's, that's not easy, is it? That's, that's hard language here. What about Proverbs 8, uh, 16, verse, uh, I'm sorry, Proverbs 29, verse 23? A man's pride shall bring him low. And by the way, that word low there is mean really low. I mean, we're talking about as low as you can get. A man's pride shall bring him low, but honor shall uphold the humble in spirit. For us, pride began in the garden, the serpent's pride of questioning God's word and calling God a liar. Did God really say that? God, God didn't say those things. Even before creation, God would record what Lucifer would proudly say in Isaiah 14, verses 12 through 14. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, which didst weaken 
the nations. And then it says, For thou hast said in thine heart, where? In thine heart. Even the enemy said something in his own heart. I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above all the stars of God. I will sit upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. That is the very same attitude as Antichrist who will come and do the very same thing in the throne of the temple of Jerusalem. Simply stated, pride is the attitude of life that declares its ability to live without God. Did you get that? Let me say it again. Pride is the attitude of life that declares its ability to live without God. The psalmist in Psalm 101, verse 5 says, Whoso privily slanders his neighbor, him will I cut off. But notice the second part of the verse. Him that has a high look. In other words, again, a haughty, conceited look. Proud look. And a proud heart. Will not I suffer it. Which means, I will not endure that person. I will not tolerate that person. That's what that word suffer means there. I won't suffer him. I won't tolerate him. I won't endure him. So now the Edomites were proud for several reasons that we're going to deal with later. But before we get all of that, I hope that you'll allow God to search your hearts for any hints of pride in your own life. You've probably heard of the lady who was aboard the Titanic and asked, a crewman if the ship was really unsinkable and you know what the crewman said to her he responded God himself could not sink this ship well we know what happened to the Titanic a piece of ice albeit a big piece of ice but a big piece of ice sunk it a similar spirit prevailed in Edom. Believing that God himself could not bring them low, they were deceived by their pride. So now we know what this book is about. But it's not over. There's a lot of things that we need to come back to next time, and we're going to do that. But let me leave you with this passage from James chapter 4, verses 6 through 10. I want this to be the encouragement for you. It is an exhortation. It is it will be maybe an admonishment to you, a strong exhortation, but I want to give it to you because we need, we need to realize how easy it would be for us to become prideful. James says in verses 6 through 10, but he gives more grace, wherefore he saith, God resists the proud, but gives grace unto the humble. So what do we need to be? Humble. We need to humble ourselves. So in verse 7 he says, submit yourselves therefore to God. Now if we're going to humble ourselves, this is how we do it. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. That's what nigh means, near. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. This is not Old Testament, this is New Testament. So understand what James is saying. There's a time when we need to humble ourselves to the point that we need to make sure, make sure 
that we are clean before God. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Why? Because sin is a sorrowful thing. So we need to get rid of it so that we can say in verse 10, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he shall lift you up. God wants to lift you up. He doesn't want to keep you down. God wants to strengthen you. He doesn't want to keep you weak. God wants to provide his wisdom for you because he doesn't want you ignorant about these things. Therefore, he's given us his word. Therefore, we need to stay in his word and continue to study his word with this understanding that as we read it, as we learn it, as we study it, as we grow in it, we, we are humbled so that he will lift us up. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and bless you for the time that you've given us to spend in your word. We ask that, Lord, you will go before us, prepare our hearts, protect us, Lord God, from ourselves when it comes to this issue of pride. Um, And Lord, just strengthen us so that we might walk in a manner worthy of your calling. We're human. We make mistakes. We acknowledge that, Lord. But we know, Lord, that you are greater than all the things that we've ever done. And greater are you than in us than he that is in this world. And so we want, we want to stay there. We want to stay there. We want you to stay there with us. And we know, Lord God, that you're faithful. Even when we're not, you're faithful. So we thank you for that. So, Father, what we ask is that you would fill us with your spirit so that we can discern the spirits and to see also that we're in the faith. Strengthen us for these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Shall we?